You're able to access that offering through cclv.org forward slash donate. cclv.org forward slash donate. We'll go ahead and get into a time of worship here, looking into God's word in a moment, as soon as the congregation settles down. As we gather back to our chairs, you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Um, before we get into the study, I would like to pray for our offertory, but also uh, God to bless the teaching of his word today. Also for those who are listening on radio or and or through Facebook, I would just encourage you if you have a question or prayer request, you can send those to cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this weekend. For many, Lord, it is a getaway weekend, but the reason behind this weekend, Lord, tomorrow as the official observance of Memorial Day, it is a remembrance of those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms here in the United States, those who are willing to give their all. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for those men and women who have served this country in such a way. And I pray, Lord, for us who are living, those who are remembering perhaps their loved ones who have gone before us, who have served in the military, or Lord, remembering a friend or family member, or just paying respect and honor, Lord, to these who have served in our country. I pray, Father, that you would be with us who are living, not only to have this remembrance, but to not take for granted the price that they paid, that we would, Lord, live for your glory in this country, that we would honor you, and that we would stand for truth and justice. Father, I pray that you would bless this nation. And I can't think of any better way than this nation to be blessed, than your Holy Spirit to pour out upon this nation, to turn the hearts, Lord, that are distant from you and bring them back to you. For those, Lord, who have perhaps fell away from the faith, Lord, bring them home. For those, Lord, who have never known you as Savior, help them to see the hopelessness of this world and the world's governments and help them to look to you for their help and their hope. Father, we do ask that you would bless the gifts given to this ministry. May they be used for your glory. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless now the teaching of your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we made it to Revelation chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 13 today. I'm going to keep kind of rehearsing some of these things for us. And we're going to begin with what we've learned so far about the seven churches. We've looked at four of the seven churches. We began in Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 looking at the loveless church, the church of Ephesus. In fact, when I look at this, and although I titled it the loveless church, I think actually it might be better described as the misplaced love because they still had a love. They just had misplaced their love no longer was it upon Jesus. And although 
Ephesus had left their first love, Jesus called them to remember and to repent. And to the overcomers, Jesus grants them free access to the tree of life. I had mentioned as we went through this study that the tree of life is only mentioned in the book of Genesis, there in the beginning, and here in the book of Revelation, we find it again. The suffering church, the church of Smyrna, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, the church of Smyrna was, they had endured great suffering, and they were about to endure even greater suffering. Jesus said 10 days of suffering. We'll look at perhaps what the Lord was referring to next week as we do a review of these churches. But to the overcomers, Jesus promised that they would not be hurt by the second death. Second death referring to that spiritual death, separation from God. The first death referring to that natural process of this life, our physical deaths. They would not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamus, the compromised or compromising church. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Jesus acknowledged that they dwelt in the place where Satan's throne was. And they even stumbled over the doctrines of Barak and also Balaam, uh, the false prophet, that of Jezebel. But to the overcomers, Jesus said that they would rule with him the bright and morning star. Even though their church was in a place where Satan's throne dwelt, there were those who had overcame within that church. And finally, the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church, and the church there, Jesus acknowledged, you guys have increased your works. In fact, the first is more than the last. They were increasing in works, in service, but they had been seduced. I'd actually looked down and saw Jezebel here and misapplied that to Pergamus. It was Thyatira that had Jezebel. They were seduced by the false prophet Jezebel. But even there, there were overcomers. Jesus said that they would rule and reign with him. That of the church of Pergamos, the overcomers, would eat of the hidden manna and be given white stones with their names, new names upon them. So each format of each of the letters, we find that Jesus begins by describing himself, he who is usually at the beginning of each of the letters. And second, he tells each of the churches, I know, I know your works. And he goes on further than that to give description of what was going on in their community. And finally, he made promise or promises to the overcomers. So today we're looking at the dead and the faithful. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 13, the dead church referring to the church of Sardis, verses 1 through 6, the faithful church, that of Philadelphia, verses 7 through 13. And we read, in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, to that of the church of Sardis, Jesus said, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven spirits are the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, 
how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The church of Sardis, the dead church as we know it from Scripture. Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire and one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was located about 60 miles inland from Ephesus and Smyrna. And the city was the home in the second century of the famous Bishop Mileto. And we'll read a a poem of him as we close out this portion. The main god there was Artemis, the goddess of the city. And the temple that was dedicated to her in Sardis was one of the largest and one of the wonders of the world at that time. Also known as Diana to the Romans, she was the called the daughter of Zeus, the twin of Apollo. She was the goddess of the hunt, and that of the moon, and that of fertility. So Sardis, they had a name that meant life, but Jesus said, you are dead. He began with that description of himself saying to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We've already looked to this seven spirits of God back in chapter one, as was mentioned to us in John describing what he was seeing when he saw the Lord uh, before him, the revelation. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and the seven spirits of God tie back to these seven spirits. I said that wrong. It's not seven separate spirits, but seven descriptive terms describing the one Holy Spirit of God found in Isaiah 11, chapter 11, verse 2. But if we back up to verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So this is talking about Jesus, this prophecy from Isaiah 11, talking about not only the Holy Spirit of God resting upon him, who is called the rod, the stem of Jesse, the branch that grows out of his roots. So It's talking about Jesus and the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. Harry Ironside wrote of this, and I believe if I remember correctly that when Ironside did his his commentary to the Bibles, at this point he was actually blind. By the time he wrote Isaiah, he had one of his aides read three commentaries to him, read the scripture, and then he dictated what He wanted to be written. So I believe it was the book of Isaiah that this took place. He had lost his sight by this time. Pretty cool that, uh, can you imagine? But pretty cool that God could use the knowledge that he had given him 
to speak through him. So here Ironside wrote, here we have the one who is presented in the book of Revelation having the seven spirits of God, that is the Holy Spirit in the sevenfold plenitude of his power coming by virgin birth through David's line. He is the branch out of the root of Jesse, the father of David. Upon him rests the spirit of the Lord. We are told that in John that the father giveth not the spirit by measure to his beloved son. That's John 3:34. From the moment of his birth, the Lord Jesus was under the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. For as man on earth, he chose not to act in his own omnipotence, but as the servant of the Godhead, the Spirit of God upon Jesus Christ. Jesus begins this letter to the church there in Sardis, saying that I am he who has the seven spirits of God. And also the seven stars. Jesus already told us the meaning behind the seven stars in Revelation 1.20. He said the seven stars were the angels of the seven churches. Angels in the Greek is angelos. It's the Greek word. It either means messenger or angel. And it could either mean one or both. I believe it falls into that category of both. That the Lord held the messengers, the pastors of these seven churches in his hand, but also the Lord held the angels who watched over the seven churches. And Jesus reminds the church of Sardis here of his authority over them. He was still in the midst of them. And this is what is amazing to me of the five of the seven churches, although the majority, it seems, within the five of the seven churches were not walking faithfully with the Lord. The Lord at this point said, I am still in your midst. There is still hope for the overcomer. And we look at our world today and the churches within here in the United States, and there are several who are no longer, their pastors are no longer holding true to the word of God. Many of the people are no longer walking in accordance to the word of God. But within those fellowships, we can have a hope that there are a few who will overcome those who hear the voice of God. For some, it means that they'll have to uh, switch and go to a different fellowship for others. When I played in a Christian band for 10 years. We played at um, a high school. Um, we rented actually the high school. We were playing at this high school, so not during school hours. But we had a couple that we met afterwards that invited us to come and play at their church up in Kenosha. It was a Catholic church. It was um, quite an experience because the priest made us give them all the lyrics to our music to make sure that we weren't trying to proselyte the Catholics. As we sang to them there, they requested that we would change some of the words of our songs, and we refused to do so. If you want us to change the words, we just won't come. And so they even had the head honcho there making sure that everything would go well. And what was bizarre to me, they were serving beer at the same time. So they're worried about us um, preaching Christ to the people. But here, have a cold one. Watch the band. Have a good time. So that was kind of mind-blowing to this Baptist boy at that time. But 
the couple who invited us, they said to us that night that we played at the high school, they said, we are born again believers in Jesus Christ. And we believe that the Lord has called us to remain within this church for at least two years that we could share the truth of Christ with the youth there. They did not make it the two years, but that was their hope. There are some who stay in hopes that they're able to win the church over or win a few. So Jesus goes on. He says, I know your works. Verse 1, again, picking up in the second half of that verse. We're going to go down to verse 4, but first of all, verse 1, he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Sardis, the name means the escaping one or those who came out. They had a name that meant life. For the believers in Sardis, they had escaped the bondage of sin. But it would appear like the first generation that came out of Egypt, the Israelites, they never fully entered into the promises of God. For Israel, they never fully entered into the promised land. In fact, that first generation that came out of Egypt ended up dying in the wilderness And it would appear that we have a similarity here. Though they had the promises of God, they had received Jesus Christ. They had not fully entered into all that the Lord would have for them. They perhaps could be described like the parable of the sower, those that the Lord described as the stony soil, the believers who had no roots within themselves, or the thorny soil, those believers who had allowed the cures of the world, the deceitfulness of riches to choke out the word, thus becoming unfruitful. They had a name that meant life, but Jesus plainly said, you are dead. So he encourages them in verses 2 and 3, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I will come upon you as a thief. What does the word tell us? That the Lord Jesus Christ will come as a thief in the night. Here he speaks similar words to the church of Sardis. He commanded them to be watchful. Now Sardis was located on a plateau of a mountain. And they were actually surrounded on three sides by this mountain. They had a river that ran before them. And so as far as their defenses, as it played out, they felt fairly safe. We have a mountain behind us. It's actually edging us in by three walls. And there's a river, a moat, we might say, before us. All we have to do is watch the southern portion where that water was. But they had actually become complacent with what they thought was the safety of their city. And they actually fell twice historically where they felt was their strongest defense. They actually fell twice because they were not watchful. This happened historically. And so the city, the Christians within Sardis would know their own history of these events. I'll describe one of those events toward the end of this portion. So he said, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. So their lack of watchfulness weakened them spiritually. 
Therefore, Jesus implores them to strengthen. It means to set fast or to turn resolutely, turn resolutely in a certain direction. It's kind of that strengthen these things before it's too late. It reminded me, like we can have um, household flowers that sometimes we forget to water, and then we remember and we see the plant, and it's like, oh my, they need some life, they need water. And we water them, we bring life back to that plant. It reminds me of a plant that's barely hanging on to life. It's still there. Life is still ready to flow, but if it doesn't receive the needed water and nutrients, it would die. This church, it's still, there was a glimmer of hope. Jesus was still in their midst. But if they did not do the things that the Lord commanded of them, they would die. He said, for I have not found your works perfect before me. Their compromise with the world has caused their works to be imperfect before God. So he called them to remember, to hold fast, and to repent. Three things he called them to do. Remember, hold fast, and repent. Remember, it's a Greek word that is... Actually, uh, present active imperative, so it can express this sense of keep on remembering. Just keep it in the back of your mind. Keep on remembering. And then to hold fast, it is to guard the foundational truths or principles of our faith. And then to repent, it, it literally means to turn around, to turn around, to head to the right path, return to the foundational truths that God had given them that they had been founded upon. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We can drift away. We can drift away, and we're in danger of doing that when we get away from the Word of God. Last year in 2020, it was reported about halfway through the year, they did a survey of Christians within their churches, of course, in 2020, not too many Christians were in the church because their churches were closed, right? But at the beginning in January, they had done a survey, and by the middle of the year, they did another survey asking Christians how many read their Bible daily. And they discovered that with Christians not attending churches or watching churches on video, that people actually read their Bible less than increasing that Bible reading. They had gotten away from fellowship and they found themselves falling away from the reading of God's Word. Now, personally, I believe 2020 and 2021 have been years for us where Christians should desire to draw closer to the Lord. We are at a place that we have never seen in our lifetimes here in this nation and in the world. And yet people are drifting away. And the Lord still calling people to remember, to hold fast and to repent. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the call to repentance, this is a call that within many of the churches today, 
they no longer hear that, those words to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And yet you hear the message of John the Baptist. You hear the message of Jesus Christ from Scripture in Matthew 3, 2 and Matthew 4, 17. That was the message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Otherwise, Jesus said, I will come upon you as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 says, For you know yourselves perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, and sadly many will be caught unaware when Jesus comes as a thief in the night. Well, the Greek historian Herodias wrote about one of the the falling of Sardis to their enemy. It was actually Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians who had surrounded the city, and Cyrus had told his officers, he made an offer to any of them, any man within their army that could find a weak point in their defenses, that he would reward them greatly. And they couldn't find one. Remember, they were on a plateau of a mountain surrounded by three sides of mountain, a river before them, a moat of this river forming before them. And then one night, one of the soldiers, a Lydian guard, there on top of the mountain, his helmet fell off. And perhaps, as it would be in any legitimate military, if you didn't show up the next morning properly dressed, didn't have your hat on, your helmet on, you could get in trouble. So as a person who lived in that city, he knew the secret way in and out. And so he climbed down, he recovered his helmet, and he climbed back up. He did not know that a soldier from the Syrian army saw him do this. And so he showed the way up to the troops. They went up and found the complex virtually unguarded. Now I'm reading from this historian now. Cyrus found the complex virtually unguarded at the top and easily captured it. The king of Lydia felt safe in his towering fortress. Yet due to this, he lost his throne because Sardis was not watchful. Those of the city allowed their defenses to grow weaker and weaker. Jesus said, watch. And yet within this city, verse 4, he says, you have a few names, even in Sardis. I, I like to stress that because it's not, maybe in the Greek, it's not stressed that way. It's hard for us to know the intent of the author, uh, the Greek language, as it was written to us, it was all uh, capital letters with no punctuation. And so we can kind of read into that any way we'd like. To me, it has this sense, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even in a dead church, there is possibility of life. And we need to understand that and we need to look for that. And we need to encourage those who perhaps are brothers and sisters that we know that they're part of a church that we would deem dead or near death. We need to encourage those who are still part of those fellowship. Uh, be a brother and sister to them. Encourage them in their faith. Lift them up. Pray for them that they would be a light and a witness to those within their fellowship. In fact, I was thinking this morning as I was reading through this that when Jesus said, even in Sardis, there are few who have not defiled their garments. 
And I could just envision those within the church of Sardis saying, oh yeah, that's, that's, uh, I always default back to Fred sometimes. My family knows this. He's talking about Fred. I don't know if it was Fred. They probably had different names back then, but um, they would know. In fact, if they would know those, even in Sardis, then those who wanted to repent, to hold fast, they would know to whom they might have to cling on to, whom they would have to follow. As Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So even in Sardis, there were those who had not defiled their garments. And Jesus promised, they shall walk with me in white. He mentions this to a different group of believers in Revelation chapter 7, talking about the saints who will die as martyrs during the great tribulation, but still talking about their walking and wearing robes of white. Revelation 7:14, the Lord said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That doesn't even sound like it can work, right? If we think about blood and white garments, wait a minute, here on earth, if you take blood and you have a white shirt, your shirt is not going to be white any longer. But spiritually speaking, we wash and are made white through the blood of the Lamb. They are worthy, we are worthy, because He is worthy. As the church will sing in Revelation 5:9, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb. They are worthy. They were worthy. We are worthy because Jesus Christ, he is worthy. So Jesus promises the overcomers, verses 5 and 6, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the coming judgments, the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, the great white throne judgment, we will find that the books will be opened. And among those books is one book that stands out above all the others. It's known in the Bible as the book of life. And if your name is found written in the book of life, then you will have everlasting life. If your name is not found written in the book of life, then you will not have everlasting life. Revelation 20:15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So that phrase, I will not blot out. This is, this is a difficult portion of scripture. And perhaps you're not going to like my response to this difficult portion of Scripture. What I'm going to do is give you two different views. Personally, I hope that I qualify in this area. I believe I have because I do not stand on my own works, but because of the work that Jesus has done upon the cross. But I went back to the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, Pastor Chuck Smith, And I looked at what he had to say about this, where the Lord said, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Pastor Chuck said, those who hold a very strict to the idea of eternal security, 
that once you have received Jesus Christ, you can never be lost no matter what you do, have great difficulty with this verse. It is interesting to read their commentaries and see how they try to skate around the words of Jesus. Is it possible that a person's name could be blotted out of the book of life? That's a question. If it is not possible, then the words of Jesus are totally meaningless. Why would he even make such a suggestion unless such a thing was possible? Eternus Lecurity, he goes on to say, has been argued since Calvin came out with the Institute of Theology. As a minister, I do not want to be guilty of giving someone false security. I don't want to assure you that you are now saved and you can go out and live however you wish. It doesn't matter. You have been saved and when you stand before the great white throne judgment of God and are condemned, I don't want you pointing at me and saying, Pastor, you gave me false assurance. I want to make it just as straight as possible. I believe that it is possible to apostatize, to turn back upon the experience that you once had with God. He would go on to talk about Charles Templeton in this message. And if you have never read the account of Charles Templeton, I would uh, encourage you to do so. He was evangelist back in the day of Billy Graham when they were coming up. In fact, they came up together in Youth for Christ as evangelists. And Charles Templeton came out with a book saying, Why I Can No Longer Believe. And uh, in The Case for Christ, who wrote that book, The Case for Christ? Lee Strobel. He gives an account of Charles Templeton, actually did an interview with him right before his death. And so it's an interesting read. So Pastor Chuck would go on and give an example of someone he felt who had fallen away. The other side of this, from gotquestions.com, they would fall in the camp of you cannot lose your salvation. And so this is a bit of what they wrote. Some people see in Revelation 3, 5, the picture of God's pen posed, ready to strike out the name of any Christian who sins. They read into it something like this. If you mess up and don't win the victory, then you're going to lose your salvation. In fact, I will erase your name from the book of life. But this is not what the verse says. Jesus is giving a promise. This actually stuck out to me. Jesus is given a promise here, not a warning. And it is a promise to those who overcome. Jesus is given a promise, not a warning. The promise of Revelation 3.5 is directed to believers who are secure in their salvation. I, I feel because of the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done in my life, that he has made me. In fact, you've heard me describe it that way, that I am secure in my faith. I stand in the surety of my salvation because Christ has made me sure. Not because of anything that I have done, but I fall into this surety of salvation. So to believers who are secure in their salvation, in contrast, the warning, and we'll see it again in Revelation 22:19. In contrast, the warning of Revelation 22:19 is directed to unbelievers who rather then change their hearts toward God, attempt to change God's word to suit themselves. Such people will not eat of the tree of life. 
So we'll come back to this in Revelation chapter 22. But here we have two positions. There are two positions within the church. And some people side on one side of the camp. Some people side on the other side of the camp. I'll leave it to you of where you will stand. I do want to point out, as they did in GotQuestions.com, the promise, it's a promise to the overcomers. It's not a warning to the overcomers. So we should think about that. It is a promise to the overcomers. As for myself, it is my desire to be one who overcomes, one to be clothed in white, one who will find my name written in the book of life, to hear Jesus confess my name before his father and before his angels as Jesus promises the overcomers of Sardis. Overcomers of Sardis, they'll be clothed in white. They'll hear Jesus confess their names before his father, God. Now the prayer written by St. Melito of Sardis, I couldn't find when he lived, I could find several times the date of his death. So it's recorded that he died in AD 180. It could be two poems. They are separated. Maybe they went together. I'm not sure if it was combined from his writings, but they're pretty cool. And so I wanted to read them to you. So this came from one of the church fathers in the second century of Sardis. And he wrote, Born as a son, led forth as a lamb, sacrificed as a sheep, buried as a man. He rose from the dead as a God, for he was by nature God and man. And then either the second half or a separate poem. He is all things. He judges, and so he is law. He teaches, and so He is wisdom. He saves, and so he is grace. He begets, and so he is father. He is begotten, and so he is son. He suffered, and so he is the sacrifice. He is buried, and so he is man. He rises again, and so he is God. This is Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory, for all ages, written back in the second century A.D. So we go to the next church, the faithful church, the Church of Philadelphia, and I can tell you that this is the church that all Christians want to be part of. There are only two churches of the seven churches that Jesus did not condemn, the Church of Smyrna, known as the Suffering Church. So I don't find many Christians willingly saying, Lord, let me suffer. There no doubt are some. But perhaps all Christians would cry out, Lord, let me be faithful. Let me be faithful. The faithful church of Philadelphia, verses 7 through 13, we read the context. It says, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, 
I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to preserve. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. To he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Church of Philadelphia is, as I said, the only of two of the seven churches that Jesus did not condemn. We already saw that the church of Smyrna was not condemned by the Lord. But Jesus told them in Revelation 2.10, you will suffer or will have tribulation 10 days. And he encouraged them, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Here, the church of Philadelphia, although they had little strength, Jesus said, I have set before you an open door. Philadelphia was a city in the providence of Lydia that of Asia Minor, then today modern-day Turkey. It was situated uh, by a river some 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was founded by Attalus II, or his name Philadelphus, so we know where the name came from, Philadelphia. And he reigned over the kingdom from 159 B.C. to 138 B.C., it was a center of the wine industry, and their chief goddess was that of the mythical god of wine. Jesus said to the church, verse 7, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. Well, if you've been following along, I hope you have for the last uh, five churches, Jesus has taken a bit of his title from chapter one in the description of himself for each of the churches. He breaks with that here. He actually grabs from later on in the book of Revelation and all the way back in Isaiah chapter 22 of these descriptions of himself. So he breaks the format that he has had thus far with the church of Philadelphia. He says, he who is holy. Hagios is the Greek word. It means to be sacred, reverend, or worthy of veneration, to be morally pure or without sin. It's used 53 times in the Old Testament, 18 times in the New Testament in reference to either God or Jesus Christ. Um, we're called to be holy, be holy as he is holy. But in the whole Bible, we have 53 times in the Old Testament referring to God or the coming Messiah, 18 times in the New Testament referring to either God or Jesus Christ, he who is holy. Also, he who is true. 
it speaks about that which is real or genuine, the genuine article. It's that which is true as opposed to being a counterfeit. Now, he who has the key of David, it's only mentioned once in Scripture back in Isaiah 22, verse 22. It says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he will open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. See how that not only the key of David, but that of the opening and closing tying exactly from Isaiah 22:22 to that of Revelation chapter 7 with the church of Philadelphia. He says, you have little strength, but I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. The reason he can do this, he has the key of the son of David upon his shoulder. And the reason he has that key is because of the work upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus said to the church there in verse 8, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Historically, Philadelphia was one of the furthest outposts of the Roman Empire. And so a garrison was placed there that would either allow entrance into the Roman Empire or to protect the Roman Empire, the first line of defense from the enemy that if they tried to attack the nation, the empire. So we could say that Philadelphia became this door that the Roman garrison would either open or close to that of their enemies. In Colossians 4.3, it says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. That God would open a door. Are we praying for an open door of ministry to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to others? We should be praying for an open door. God opened the door. Jesus said to Philadelphia, you have little strength. Now I like this. I think about Philadelphia. I think about myself. I think about our church. You have little strength. John or CCLV, Calvary Chapel Lake Villa, you guys know that. John or CCLV equals weakness, little strength. But John or CCLV plus Jesus means that we have strength. We have victory. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, he is strong. Paul says, I take pleasure in these things that actually weaken my flesh because when I am weak, he is strong. Jesus said they kept his word. They did not deny his name. Today we find in the United States, up in Canada, and many churches maybe in Europe as well, wanting to be relevant. Many churches have set aside the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have forgotten that it is through the name of Jesus Christ and through the keeping of his word that there is power unto salvation. And it is only through Christ that there is power to be saved. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all those who love his appearing. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Jesus acknowledged, again, the synagogue of Satan. We looked at this last week as well. There were those in the synagogue of Satan, which Jesus said in verse 9, they are not Jews, but they lie. They were actually blaspheming the name of God. In Revelation 2.9, we saw this last week. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but of our, the synagogue of Satan. And thus, we find, according to the word of God, there are two different types of Jews, those who are outward Jews and those who are inward Jews. Paul describes it in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcised that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew as one inwardly, the circumcision, that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but that of God. So it's an inward work in the circumcision of the heart, salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not, that they will worship at your feet. They will bow down at your feet. It doesn't mean that those non-believing Jews will worship before the church itself, but having acknowledged that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, they will do this in the sight of the church. Where Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven and those on the earth, those under the earth, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because they had kept, verse 10, they have kept my commandment to preserve. Jesus said, I will also keep them from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. On the day of judgment, Jesus said, I will let the world know that I have loved you, his church. They kept his command to preserve. It could be uh, the King James, the New American Standard, the American Standard Bible. I'll translate this, my command to preserve. It's translated as the word of my patience. The word of my patience. This speaks about the preserving faith that we have, preserving until the day of our redemption. James 5, 7 and 8, James encourages us, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is near. So the hour of trial, perhaps this is one of the strongest proofs of the coming tribulation, but also the rapture of the church, that the church itself will not be part of the great tribulation. Jesus said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. I will keep you from this. You will not go through it. The key for being kept from this hour of trial 
is by keeping the commands of the Lord to preserve. In Luke 21, verses 34 through 36, Jesus said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life, and that the day will come upon you unexpectedly, the thief in the night. Remember that. For it will come as a snare to all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Counted worthy to escape, not worthy to go through them and then stand before Jesus, but to escape these coming things. So Jesus is promised to the overcomers. Verses 11 through 13, he first says, hold fast. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. Hold fast that no one will take your crown. In the Bible, in the New Testament, we read of believers receiving seven different crowns. We find in the New Testament, the crown of righteousness, the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of glory, the crown of life. There is also the Stephanos crown. The Stephanos crown is what is described as the a wreath, or for Jesus, it was the crown of thorns. And Jesus bore the perishable crown, the crown of thorns, that we might bear imperishable crowns, crowns of rejoicing, crowns of righteousness, crowns of glory, crowns of life. I said seven. My notes say several. I didn't give you seven. Mark 15, 17 through 18 says, And they clothed him in purple. They put on him a twisted crown of thorns upon his head. They saluted to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So Jesus said to them, Hold fast that no one may take your crown. And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, in the city of the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven from God. We'll read more about the city of the new Jerusalem. We get back toward the end of the book of Revelation. But Philadelphia had often been shaken by earthquakes. It is recorded that in 17 AD, there was an earthquake that struck in Asia Minor. It came in the middle of the night. It hit several of the seven churches in that region that they were from. It was called the greatest earthquake in human memory. The greatest earthquake in human memory. And it destroyed dozens of cities. Some of the cities that it touched that we've been reading about was Sardis, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and possibly Smyrna. The earthquake was so devastating that the Roman government didn't receive any taxes from these cities that they might rebuild their cities. Can you imagine a government saying, you know what, no more taxes. You guys, you have a tax break now. It came in the night, and the people rushed out of their homes. We were in an earthquake when we lived out in California, and I can tell you that sometimes you just don't know what to do. It came in the night. 
So we were first awakened by the noise. It sounded to me as a train rattling down the tracks. There were no railroad tracks where we lived. So I knew it wasn't a train. But the earth actually moans, it groans. We heard it before we felt it. Then we felt the shock of it. We were an hour away from the epicenter. And we gathered in our living room, Lily and John and Melissa and myself. And by the time we got to the living room, it was over. It was a quick quake. And I remember standing in our living room as if I was standing on a boat at sea. And we were just kind of swaying back and forth. We thought we were on solid ground, but we found out that we were not. The whole earth was swaying at that time. It was something to experience. So think about this. Jesus promised you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. You will go out no more. There'll be no shaking, no reason to run out of the city. That's what the people did. They ran out to try to keep from the buildings falling upon them. In fact, I will write the name of my God, the name of my, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, my name upon you. They bear the name of God upon them, the name of Jesus. Revelation 21, 2 and 3, it says, I, John, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And may we be those who bear the name of Christ, both now and on into eternity. The dead church of Sardis, we've seen that Jesus called them to be watchful, to remember and to repent. And those who overcame, they would be clothed in garments of white. Their names would be found in the book of life. And Jesus promised to confess their names before his father, God, and before the angels. To the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia. Although they had little strength, Jesus said, I have set before you an open door. And as pillars in the temple of God, the overcomers would never be shaken out of the presence of God. The overcomers would then bear the name of God, the name of the city, the new city of Jerusalem, the name of Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand together. It's my prayer that you are an overcomer and realize that we overcome through the blood of the Lamb. When I was in the school of ministry, one of the students asked Pastor Chuck, do you believe in eternal security? We touched on that today. This was his answer to us there in the school of ministry back in probably 1993. Pastor Chuck says, I approach this in two different ways. If someone in the church comes to me and they're living in sin, they're not walking with God, barely coming to church, and yet they say, I went forward, I got saved, so I'm eternally secure. He said, I will give them every verse of scripture that talks about condemnation of those who do not walk with Christ. 
But if someone comes to me and they're worried whether they're saved or not, and yet they're faithful to the Lord, they're faithful to come to church, they're doing the things that the Lord has called them to do. He said, I will give them every verse of comfort that I can possibly think of to let them know that they are secure. Perhaps there are those who you're unsure. I would encourage you today that that surety comes through Christ and Christ alone. Here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, we have a church model that says believe, receive, grow, and go. And I'd like us to run through that church motto today. On our radio, we are currently Monday through Friday going through last year's teaching. And as of next week, I believe, I have been reading the Believe and Receive, Grow and Go. We haven't been doing it together as a church yet. It's kind of cool to listen to history, kind of how it's been forming out in history over 2020. But now we read it together. You guys better than me most of the time. But we say together, believe, Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11:6. We also need to receive, receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we say together, Romans 5.17, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We told you you guys do it better than me. You have to receive Jesus Christ. This is necessary. As believers, once we receive Christ, we need to grow in our faith. And we say together, 2 Peter 3, 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3, 18. And finally, we need to go. We say together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. I didn't forget that time. I was just swallowing. I would encourage those, if you are watching through social media, if you're listening on WLGS and and you have questions regarding faith, please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. There's information about our church there at cclv.org. You can find information about our church at cclv.org. Those who have any questions, of course, I'm here. Pastor Kevin's here. You can talk to us today if you're here at the church. This coming Wednesday, we're going to continue in Genesis. We made it through chapter one last week. So I have in my notes, we're going to do chapters two and three. I sure hope so, but I'm going to try and we'll see. But I titled it as if we're not. I titled it One Flesh. One Flesh comes from chapter two, but I hope that we get into chapter three. 
So I look forward to being with you Wednesday evening at 7 p.m., either live here at the church through Facebook Live or at WLGS Radio. Let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we'll close in a song of worship. So, Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And tomorrow, Lord, our country is remembering the lives of those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. For our country, Lord, it's known as Memorial Day to pay respect for those who have given their lives, who have served in our military, to remember and honor. And those throughout the uh, graveyards, throughout most of our country, Lord, there are flags placed at the gravestones of those who have served our country to recognize their service. We thank you, Lord, for those who have served this country in such a way to have the freedoms that we have. We know, Lord, in our country today that there are those who they are neglecting these great freedoms that you have given us. We know, Lord, that these freedoms have their foundation in Judeo-Christian society. There are those, Lord, who are rejecting those very same things. To say a Judeo-Christian society simply says that our foundations come from the very word of God, the Old and New Testament. Pray, Lord, that your church would not forget this, that we would remember, and if need so, that we would repent, that you, Lord, would send revival upon this nation. We know, Lord, that it is desperately needed. And, Father, I pray that the revival would begin in us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.